0: The mission, May 4th, 2010. From History Channel, if ancient aliens visited Earth, what was their mission? And is there evidence that points to when they will return? Ancient Sumerian tablets describe an alien race known as the Anunnaki, who came to Earth to mine gold. Egyptian hieroglyphs depict hybrid creatures that were part man, and part animal. Hey, hello, and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. I'm your host, Frederick, and this is the podcast where we watch History Channel's series Ancient Aliens through the lens of an archaeologist. If you're new here, I'd like to say hi and Happy New Year, Gotnitor. And if you've been here for a bit longer, welcome back. So, today we will begin to break down episode three of Ancient Aliens, and this is episode five in total. And it's called The Mission, as you maybe heard there in the beginning. And if we just look back a little bit, we have talked a bit about the evidence Ancient Aliens proponents have about the visitors. And so today we will begin to break down episode 3, titled The Mission, as you might have heard there in the beginning. And if we look back just a bit, we have talked about what the ancient aliens proponents think are the evidence for their cause. And from there, we went on to talk about the visitors themselves in episode 2. And now we're three were well i assume we will talk about what they were really doing here and we can already start to note that they will recycle a bit of things that we've talked about before so sumerian tablets and anunnaki we touched in episode 1 already and well egyptian uh, hybrid creatures will be new to us Um, So it will be interesting to see what they found there. And I have this hunch that we won't really visit Europe at all. Again, it seems to be mostly focusing on Africa and South America. A bit of Mesoamerica too. uh, Especially the Mayan and of course the Aztec. But uh, let's begin. So we... Opening up on the narrator, coming in, talking about what was their mission. And the speaker, by the way, is named Robert Clothworthy. And he seems to be, have been narrating quite a few of History Channel's different productions. He's also the narrator in the movie, or new movie, Red Notice, with Gal Gadot and Ryan Reynolds and the Rock. Maybe the most famous Thing i found at least and quickly we switched to apollo 11 again uh, just had that in episode two but but in a way it's i don't know refreshing or cute and uh, that they at least don't think that a moon landing is a hoax and the speaker said first time beings visited another planet or was it given the vastness Is it so hard to imagine that such a thing could have happened before? That someone visited the moon or intergalactic space travel? Here they are a bit unclear because the difference is quite huge. If you start to think about it, there's one thing to visit the moon. It's a huge thing, but not the same thing as intergalactic space travel, maybe. Anyway, in the meantime, uh, when they talk about this alien's visiting Earth just like we visited the moon. And they show a bit of pictures on the screen. Uh, I see Il Castillo, I think at least, from Chichen Itza. And then they switch to a rather strange effigy if you don't really know what you're looking at. at. To me, it seems to be a Teotish uh, one-related Incensario uh, lid. Roughly 500 to 600 CE. Uh, from what I can find out, it's probably from the George Castillo collection in Guatemala City. The reason that they put this um, insensorial lid in here is because it... L- well, Again, if you don't know what you're looking at, it would maybe appear strange. Especially if you put it in the context of... Uh, Spacemen and aliens, because he has something that you could depict as a space helmet if you don't understand their and uh, their um, cultural language when they depict something and how they uh, represent different things. So if you would start to look closely on this um, in sense... Incensario lid, so it's for burning incense, basically. Uh, we see the Teotitron reptili lifts in a shield or maybe a medallion on the chest, um, as you could see on many other statues from this area. The arms are unfortunately broken off, but if we take into account how the dress headdress uh, is uh, decorated um, we would expect to see a ball and a diamond spear. Um, or we see a ball and a diamond spear symbol on the headdress. So we should see probably um, spears or other war implements in the hands if they would still be there. And the face is surrounded by four petaled flowers. And from the nose hangs a butterfly instead of the more common uh, tablero talud plaque. And the eyes were once iron pyrite, gold or maybe shiny micra. And as I said, uh, except for the balls and the diamond spear, the headdress has bird and butterfly eyes surmounted by a full set of lateral butterfly antennae. And a coiled frontal feeler in the center. Behind the four vertical spear symbol arises a chimney. Of course, since it's an incense holder, basically, um, yeah. So it's quite clear that we know what this is, and all the different things are clear to us. But yeah, for if you would speak about aliens and then throw out this without context, it could make people maybe believe that it's oh, that that must be an astronaut or something. How how would they know? Yeah, (laughs) we have quite better explanations for this than aliens. And then we uh, switch to Bill Barnes, uh, who has a PhD in medieval literature. And he talks about that they they have so much evidence for visitations, uh, even starting before the written word. Again, uh, they like to talk that they have evidence, but... They don't really like to be that concise with what the evidence really is. Um, if we would have some tomb of an proper alien or something more hands-on it would be appreciated. But, but no, we see more petroglyphs without context. Among them are murals depicting uh, Vandidja spirits from Australia. Again, something that looks weird if you don't know what it is and to be honest i didn't know when i first saw them they looked strange but you didn't have to do that much research to really figure out what was going on on here so vandija is part of the religion of the worora aboriginal uh, people in australia the vandija are believed to be local spirits who take care of the land and when they find a place where they would um, basically settle down and die <laughs> they drew themselves on the rock and entered through a water hall. um the other side so to say. Again they show something that would look strange to the audience but don't give them they don't really tell you what it is they don't even put some info um, uh, info text on the screen about it, they just pop it up and it's, it feels a bit dishonest Uh, dishonest from them to do like this and I will put in the show notes links so you can go and see what I'm talking about and maybe read a bit more about the Vandidia if you would like to. And we move from basically not much to uh, back to 1986. Helium 3 on the moon and is that really a fuel source? And they talk about the, that a single shuttle with this element could feel the energy need for uh, f- could feel the energy need for the U.S. for a whole year, and they are um, asking themselves, could this, this be why the aliens come here? Um, I thought they had a power source in the Great Pyramid in Egypt, as they talked about in episode one, but maybe it was helium three powered. Um, They are a bit unclear on this point. Um, So apparently there's proponents of helium-3 that thinks that fusion power plants would have a really high output compared to what you need to put into it. And it seems to be true, there's a hypothesis at least, that helium-3 could be part of the solution uh, towards more efficient and cleaner energy needs. But from what I could find out when I looked into it, the earliest date where any power plant with helium-3 might might produce power would be in 2050. So it would be about 40 years until we would have a power plant uh, producing any energy with helium-3. but The show is at least right in that there's a lot of helium-3 in large quantities on the moon. On Earth, uh, it has unfortunately disappeared. But we get back to Billy Barnes, who talks about that uh, we will first send robots to mine, and then people. And if if we would do it, why would not aliens come and do that? They don't really talk that much more about robots, but um, if Alien came here, what would the evidence be, the speaker asked. And yeah, that's a great question. And we start in Iraq and the cradle of civilization, 3500 to 1900 BCE, the Sumerians, first culture to build cities with grid almost like New York. They invented sewage, cobblestones, and farming. They are talking about uh, the Nineveh tablets, and here's another thing that they seem to do a lot. The Nineveh tablets is a library from the city of Nineveh, and has been preserved due to a big fire in the city. Luckily for us, the Sumerians wrote Um, They wrote on clay tablets, and when you have a fire, the clay tablets hardening, saving for a future generation, basically. Um, So fires in Sumeria have in some ways preserved their society in ways that they might not have really um, thought of back then. Compare that to maybe a fire in the Great Library of Alexandria, where most... Uh, Most documents were written down on papyrus, and we don't really have that many texts surviving, unfortunately. Anyway, uh, this library contains some 30,000 tablets. All the tablets are numbered, and they could easily give this to us, but um, as Zachariah Sitchin, they don't do this. Um, This means that you can't really go, go and look it up that easily. As I think I mentioned in the first episode, we um, we have large online resources today and that makes that basically anyone could go back and look up these tablets themselves, which makes research a lot easier and you don't any longer really need to take the words of Zacharias Sitchins on these things. But again, they don't like to tell you where you find it, only... Uh, Vague notion and we will notice it in further episodes and even a bit here that they like to use big epic text where it would, well, take some time to really find the passage they are talking about. But they are claiming that many stories in here are just as in the genesis. And we meet Arthur D. Horn, who is a former professor in anthropology, and evolution denier, since he claims life came from aliens and we didn't evolve at all in that way. But he's saying, quote, virtually every story in Genesis, the flood stories Adam and Eve comes from the ancient Sumerians. I'm don't I don't know about this, but sure, the Sumerians thought that humans were created by the gods from clay. If it's that he it means with Adam and Eve, for example. But to some extent, it's not really a new, weird, or local. Many cultures seems to have clay as the sort of life, and it's quite reasonable. Thought in reality, uh, from clay you can make pottery statues, things that helps you in life and is easily shaped. So, if we would make art in clay, why wouldn't the God use uh, this material too? And we also have this not only in the Sumerians uh, or in the Bible; we also have this in in the Egyptian's faith, uh, where you were basically create all. Not the first, but every human was basically created on the potter wheel. And um, the Vikings had similar thoughts where the humans came from. And then we actually get to meet Zachariah Sitchin for a little bit, who published his own translations, uh, The Earth Chronicles. And he talks about the uh, Anunnaki, that they would be an alien race that came to Earth to mine gold. Then we get Giorgio, um, the meme guy, <laughs> most famous for. Uh, but Giorgio says that Sitchin's thesis is that the uh, aliens came here for gold because it's needed for their atmosphere on their home planet. And I started to wonder is this maybe here that David Icke got his thoughts about the monochromic gold? I'm not sure if you know, <laughs> please let me know, but at least a thought. This seems to be before Ike's uh, alien reptile overlord monochromic gold stories, so could be the um, genesis for that ideas at least. But the gold content in the atmosphere was depleting. They don't really go into why they would need gold in the atmosphere, but it's alien, so reasons... All right, we. um, First of all, Zachariah Sitchin has not been able to, well, even prove that he has any knowledge or insight into the Sumerian language that would be of help if he wants to translate his tablets again. And he does stays both in the books and here in the show saying something, but he doesn't give you any source for the text that he claims to have been translated. And the translation themselves are a bit weird. Uh, so to start with the to start, the Sumerians rarely mention gold in the text. And as I said, you can go and look it up yourself. Uh, you don't have to take his word, but if you will look up gold on the Sumerian tablets, you will... Start to know that they don't really mention that a lot, to be honest. And Sitchin also wants to remake the god of Ia uh, from the god of wisdom to the god of mining. And he's not really clear on how he got to this translation. Neither in the show or if you would skim through his books. Because he would really need to remake a lot of hymns to get it to fit. Because if we take a little excerpt here from Enuma Elish. He who understands all. The wise one. The great one. Ia who knows all this. Perceived the plot. He countered it with a powerful spell. If Ia was the god of mining, this text don't really fit, to be honest. But a god of wisdom, that that makes sense for the test. God of mining, eh, you don't need to understand everything to mine it. Basically, basically, it would be like saying that Odin is the god of mining. It wouldn't really fit with the sources we have describing him as this wise one sacrificing his eye for the knowledge or hanging himself from the uh, tree as as a sacrifice to himself uh, to gain even more knowledge. But yeah, um, it would be basically the same there. But at least I'm noticing that the animation has leveled up, I think. Um, And on the screen during... This talk about the alien gold, we see a exodus of spaceships coming towards Earth. And then they switch to unique properties of gold. We meet Michael Denning, who is actually a physicist. He says that, well, gold is probably as important to aliens as for us. That sounds a bit weird. Gold isn't the most... <laughs> important thing I would say Uh, if the earth would go under I don't think really the first point on people's checklist might be get more gold or maybe it is maybe that's how we are here but um, Michael Denning proceeds if their society is like ours they will need electricity okay I can buy that and gold is the best conductor and yeah, here's a point there. Uh, gold is an sc- extremely good conductor. Not sure if we would travel through intergalactic space to get more if we would run out, but maybe. Uh, maybe not. And they talk about the thermoelectric effects, which is basically gold that you heat up can generate a bit of electricity. And the voiceover claims that uh, it's proven that gold is an energy source. Yeah, sure, you can get a bit of energy uh, out of it, but you would put in more energy to get a little bit of electricity out of it. Not that efficient that way. Uh, As a conductor, yes, power source, meh. And according to the narrator, it might be uh, how the alien propel their spaceships. And we we stay with Michael Denning a bit longer and he talks about how gold can be used to protect the spaceships from infrared light and that it has good property as a heat protector and things like that. Nothing really weird here, to be honest. Um, But I'm assuming this is to lay ground on how the aliens got here and why. They need more gold to make more spaceships and produce more energy and for the atmosphere. Don't forget the atmosphere. And then we have a bit of potpourri of different uh, talking heads. So we have David Childress uh, who talks that gold is the only metal that really lasts. And he has a point. It's an eternal metal. That's why we see it quite a lot in um, Egyptian grave goods. For example, Uh, think about King Tut and how much gold he really had in there, even though silver was more valuable in Egypt. But that would be a different, <laughs> a different thing. And then when we meet George Nouri, he is the um, the voice of Coast to Coast FM, and he talks about extraterrestrial comes from another planet into our solar systems. So we meet George Nouri. he's the um, host on Coast to Coast FM, and He, again, basically repeats um, that the aliens were running out of minerals. And we have Daniken himself. And he talks again, basically repeating what's been said for the third time. uh, But he's adding that they're measuring the planet for gold. And we switch back quickly to George Nori, who is talking about the expedition force. ...that was sent here to mine, but they didn't want to work, so they needed to find workers. And I guess here we will talk about the Anunnaki again. We met them in the first episode, Uh, but uh, apparently, according to the ancient aliens people, the Anunnaki came here to mine gold. And these gold miners then had a council, and they decided to make a primitive worker... Called a demo. And if you didn't haven't checked out episode one or need to refresh your memory, we will do that here. And So if you look into the Anunnaki, uh, you're noticing that the translation would be something like uh, offspring of An, or maybe uh, even of a princely seed. And you don't need to take my word for it. We have the actual uh, dictionaries from the scribes of Sumeria. And, well, it would fit with being kids of An and not minors. So the Anunnaki is basically um, the descendants of the sky god An, just as uh, Thor, Balder, Vithal, and Vali uh, are sons of Odin. And An's children were. An, Enil, Enki, um, Ninhursang, Nana, Uto, and Inana. So that the Ananaki would be an alien race is almost a bit laughable. And that they were mm, alien miners is even more odd because that wouldn't fit at all in with the Pantheon. And Nori comes back in the aliens who came here, saw Homo erectus and thought, They seem stupid. They won't listen to us. So they started to change them. Again we have this anti-evolution crap that they don't really want to let go. It's a bit weird when the science fiction people don't really buy the science. (laughs) Why he goes to just Homo erectus is beyond me. Maybe it's the one that he knows. But Homo erectus is as with the Neanderthal more or less contemporary with humans. They are a bit earlier, but um, Homo sapiens came in perspective not that far after. So Homo erectus is a bit earlier and comes in around 1 million BP, uh, so 1 million years before presence, and disappears from the reckon around 50,000 BP. And Homo erectus was not the first hominid, even. Um, we have Earlier examples such as Ergaster and Heidelbergensis, who both were first among the hominids to leave Afri- Africa. There's even spe- speculation about art and the uh, associated stone tools um, that are growing more complex from one to earlier Chuan tools. I think they went with Erectus because of the name upright person, so to them it might seems earlier but yeah it's in perspective a quite late hominid but and it doesn't really make sense in a biological evolutionary or archaeological sense um the different species has spread out quite decently and we're moving we have erectus as far away in china and on java So that the aliens would use them to cross-beat homo sapiens don't really make much sense. But according to Sitchings, Adamo were the first modern humans and they were created 450 years ago. 450,000 years, I'm sorry. And by mixing aliens' DNA with, I assume, proto-human. We then meet a new face, Alinda Malton Howe. It's carved into the stone. This is not something made up. It's part of the Sumerian history. Wouldn't be carved into stone really. Maybe clay (laughs) she's thinking about. And we meet um, the anthropology professor again, Horn. They believe that their gods created them as a slave species and didn't have any philosophical beliefs about their purpose which is a bit strange coming from an anthropology professor. He he should know better, but who am I to judge there? <laughs> but I haven't been able to corroborate that statement from either of them. Again, we have George Nuri, who seems to be the one talking the most here. Uh, if you believe these theories, they actually started to make sense. Yeah, if you believe it, I assume it would make sense to you. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, we're leaving ancient Sumeria for now and moving to South Africa and a large concentration of gold mines dating back 150,000 years ago. We then have the narrator coming in, quote, In many languages in Africa, the native word for star is bringer of knowledge or enlightenment. Some African cultures believe that we have been visited for years. Sulu legends talk about visitors from the stars that came to excavate gold and other natural resources. I haven't, again, been able to really put a yes or no, since they don't really say where they get things to. It's quite difficult to really track it down. But since they are talking about Africa quite a lot, I'm hoping to uh, have a deep dive into... These religions that they bring up in a further episode. Maybe we can figure out where they at least got this from. But as to date, I'm not sure about this at all. Uh, I didn't find any pseudo legends about alien visitors, at least, uh, who's coming to ex- excavate the gold. We then switch back to Childress. Some of these mines are believed to be hundreds of thousands of years old. If humans didn't make them, we must assume E.T. did. Yeah, all right. (sighs) So they have mentioned these mines a few times now, and claiming they are really, really old, before metallurgy old. And you might find it weird that you've never heard about these mines, really, and so am I, I even flip through my old textbooks a little bit just <laughs> to see, well, did we really talk about this? No, we didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to try to dig down and that was actually a bit harder than I thought it would be. So I ended up on Google trying different keywords to figure out, well, what could these minds be? And I stumbled upon a newspaper reporting on a on a Michael Tellinger. So, t- Michael Tellinger is a sort of politician and a self published author who is claiming that the um, Blaubuschkral stone ruin was not built in the 1500 CE by the Bukoni people. He thinks it's an ancient alien calendar city or. Mine, that's a bit unclear, to be honest. It could also be, it could be another site. Michael Tellinger th- might be Mozambique's Maputo. Either way, it's basically just Bosnian pyramids all over it. From what I can find, there's no evidence about it, except for Tellinger's own dating of the site. And to be honest, I can't really find that he would have any sort of relevant training, experience, um, except for a degree in pharmacology. That wouldn't really help in data and archaeological site, though. <laughs> they don't really talk about that part. They just drop the mines and don't specify it much more. Again, the whole give you a bit of information and don't really dig down on it. They <laughs> runs running all over the place instead. Additional evidence on the American content. And what I'm thinking, they haven't shown any evidence at all. So far in this episode at least. They're shooting all over the place. to It was a quite rough episode to watch. But we're going back to Peru. We've been there before. Known as the land of gold. The Inca had abundance of it when Spain arrived. Not really. Um, and they sent a shipload of their loot back to Spain. Sure. Um, that would be an interesting topic to maybe talk about later. But to the South American people, gold wasn't that that important to him. Uh, it was more later... Or when the Spaniards came and started to demand it, they got these bigger quantities. Um, Anyway, we are back with Michael Denning, the physicist, who claims that the Inca used gold for status and that many cultures believed that gold was from the gods. They ingest pure gold. I'm not so sure about that. And then throws in the Baghdad battery. Out of nothing. They are quite stuck on the electricity part. And uh, by the bag that batteries. It would be a fun thing to maybe look into a bit longer. But it's basically not a hoax. But since we don't have the original batteries left basically. I eh, It's iffy to say the least. But at least it was not proof that they had electricity back then. Uh, some... Speculate it might have been too uh, used in metallurgy. Could be, or it's just a find that we don't understand without context or relevance. Uh, Find back in the warehouse of the museum in Baghdad. But we can look into it a bit later, I think. And we then Move back to Nori, all over Peru, you have signs of ancient mining operation that go down to thousands and thousands of feet. They only don't specify where, so I will gloss that over. If you don't want to give me a location name, I... I will take it with a grain of salt and say sure, sure. (laughs) We're back with Michael Denin talking about that gold is easy to mine. Even if it's rare and talk about different techniques that they have been using until actually quite recently without naming any in specific. Uh, but he's talking about using water, heating, freezing. There is signs in Peru that they mined quartz, uh, hematite and red okra. And we're staying with Michael Denning who is talking about that quartz is a quite common thing. And yeah, <laughs> it's really common. You will find it in... Most sites, basically, when you're digging, and it can be used for quite reasonable things. And that hematite and okra are more valuable, especially okra, since it's used in red paint. Hematite is also used in paint to some degree, since some variants of hematite have red pigments. And then we're back at the Nazca line, of course, again. And the speaker is claiming that the origins is a big mystery. We have Giorgio, the meme guy. Entire mountaintops have been removed. This requires machining. Since we today need sof- sophisticated machinery. Again, uh, we need this today crap. And to be honest, it's a quite lazy argument. It would basically be if I said they could not have been writing this long book back then. To write a book of that size, you would need a computer and decent lighting. Almost. Not exactly the same, but the same kind of spirit. They're staying on the Nazca Plain and saying that it must have been some sort of beacon with all these raw materials in such abundant quantities there. I have no idea about that, but it's a mountainous area, so I guess it could be at least some, but the Nazca Plain isn't really famous for its uh, huge abundance of mines in the area, but they don't really present anything new. But as we talked quite a lot about the Nazca lines uh, in the previous episode, I think we we will just gloss this one over. The ancient alien theorists want the Nazca lines to be a huge uh, controversy among archaeologists and ancient aliens. Well, maybe the ancient aliens people, but for us it's quite explained. But apparently there's one thing we can agree on. It's a band of Hall in the Pisco Valley. That's apparently a complete mystery. And it's a quite large stretch of shallow holes. We meet Robert M. Schorst, a geologist. And then again comes in. It was a robot who collected and measured and then disappeared. Michael Denning, the physicist, who seems to be playing the role of devil's advocate for a lot of things in this episode, comes in and says that there there might be natural. We're about 20 minutes in, 46 seconds, if you want to look at these holes again. And the speaker comes in, archaeologist thinks that these holes are to stole grain. No, that's one theory, at least. Ancient aliens' theories reject it. Giorgio comes in and thinks that it's a mystery that these holes can only be seen from the air. You can still see them from the ground, but yeah, they are more visible from the air. Yes, he has a point. And from all these holes, you can easily create a message that can be seen from air. Sure. So the aliens have these intergalactic... Spaceships, but still use written messages on the ground when they want to communicate with each other. Yeah, that sounds even weirder. But let's talk a little bit about the halls. They are actually a bit unknown, and there's actually not a lot of studies that have been made as of yet, at least. It was discovered quite late. Published first in 1933, and the band stretches for 1.5 kilometers roughly, or for you American listeners, that would be 1,600 yards. And the holes are quite close to the Inca road system, so it could be a relation there. But as for now, more studies are needed, and I'm going to say something here that many might need to hear. It's actually all right to not know something. The answer I don't know is a very valid answer from time to time. I know that we humans tend to prefer answers and certain answers to that. That's why we invented religion and ghost not what. But sometimes we can say I don't know and then go and try to figure it out instead. The holes are one of those things where we would need to go and try to find more information. Take samples, maybe excavate and study site more properly. Maybe then we can say, now we know. Until then, let's skip the aliens and go with, I hope we will find out one day. And then we leave the holes and the narrative comes back in. If there's still gold here, why did they leave? If there's still gold here, why did they leave? Could it be another mission? Perhaps... The real mission was to hunt man. Alamosa, Colorado. September 7, 1967. A horse named Snippy. Mutilated. Shrouded in mystery. Cattle mutilations. And then we switch to Thomas E. Bullard who has a PhD in folklore. And he talks about cattle mutilation and how it entered the UFO folklore in In the early 1970s, we meet Linda Howe again. We met her a brief, brief period a bit earlier in this episode. Uh, she has spent a lot of time investigating these things and she claims she have 266 Polaroids. And she claims to have been talking to a lot of police officers who says... We are not dealing with predators, disease, or satanic cults. We are dealing with creatures from outer space. And then we go back to Bollard, who go through a few theories, such... Linda continues that claiming that you have talked to someone in the government deals with the aliens and say that this contact claims that it's for genetic harvest. So apparently the American... Or assume they're implying uh, uh, at least that um, the government have aliens on staff, maybe. I'm not sure. And to what end? And then, no, 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 we're back at Egypt. And they talk about Frankenstein experiments. So apparently there's a Frankenstein in Egypt. I assume they talk about the monster, not Dr. Frankenstein. The whole misconception that the monster is Frankenstein or you could say that he is in one way. But that would be uh <laughs> that would maybe be a different discussion. Uh, if we if you want to have it, we can have it. But maybe another time. But we have Giorgio here. Quote We have ancient descriptions from Egypt that the gods created chimeras Hybrids. Painting of human bodies without heads, with a tube coming out of it. Next to it is the head of an animal. Next image, the head is on the body, and this is at minute 26 second on oh nine. And then they s- switching to the Sumerians, and that they have similar depictions. They don't want to tell you where they are or how they look, but they're showing a bit of. Different, um, especially Babylonian gods, not Sumerians necessary. But he, Georgia is at least back with the whole mainstream archaeology that just, yeah, makes me a bit angry. They don't go into really these depictions here that they showed from Egypt. And I couldn't really get my way back to it. Again, they don't really give you the information. But to me... It looks like a uh, religious processions. Um, I'm not really sure which one though. I hope to be able to find it out a bit later. But if you know, around minute 26, please uh, send it in and we can add it a bit later. But Giorgio goes on uh, ripping on mainstream archeology as he calls it. And then the Anunnaki calling them these bizarre Beings. And from Giorgio, we go to Sakara, 1851. August Maria, a tomb dedicated to the Apis Balls. Giorgio claims that inside, Auguste found two sealed sarcophagus. They made a shocking discovery. They didn't find any bulls in their burials, but they found bitumen. Uh, bitumen is a type of asphalt, uh, or is used in asphalt, and it's quite sticky residue and in this residue so bone fragments from seven different animals mashed together and the inscription on this sacrifice in describing some kind of a monster during the time of the egyptians the priest instructed the people to kill the creature putting it under the lid of 80 tons The crushed bones in the sarcophagus means that the Egyptian did not want this creature to ever return. All right, let's try to figure this one out. Uh, So let's go and see what uh, Auguste Mariette himself said about the site. So I'm quoting from his own writings here. When, in fact, I lifted the lid, I thought the tomb was empty. But paying just a bit more attention, I soon distinguished at the bottom of the coffin a bull's head. And under this head a blackish mass which served as support. I examined the head first. It did not adhere to anything and had been placed on the mass. The skin was completely gone and all my efforts to find the traces of the strips were in vain. I then examined the support. It was oval in shape, fairly regular, and measured about a yard in length, a foot in width, and about the same in thickness. As to its nature, I recognized that this was a form of confused cluster of bitumen and large broken bones of beef, all piled up haphazardly under a muslin envelope. So the find they're talking about was in the Serapium of Sarkera, more precisely among the isolated tombs in chamber E. This burial is from Hormheb, the Mm -hmm. last king of dynasty 18. And the large lid they are talking about is probably the giant lid of the first bull who died during Amasis II's rule. And he was part of Dynasty 26, so quite a time later. The lid has an inscription, but it's not as the ancient aliens want to depict it. It's as follow Quote. He has caused this to be made for his memorial of the living Apis. This huge sarcophagus of red granite, for his majesty approved the custom that all the kings in all ages had such made of costly stone. This he did, the bestower of life forever. So, it's quite different from what they're depicting <laughs> the here. Um, so, they're first of all, they're talking two different burials from two different rulers, and the hieroglyphs on them doesn't match at all. And, yeah... It seems again, um, so August, August Mariette was a Frenchman and he wrote exclusively in French. So maybe, again, they relying on that most people don't speak French by just a numbers game. So the chances of you finding this book from the eighteen hundred century mid eighteen hundred century might be you know uh, hard except for today with all the computers digitizations of older library it's actually it become quite easy to find this sort of things uh, anyway and then they move from this little gem to and we continue moving on and of course, they again bring up the mainstream archaeologists believe that the stories about Greek and Egyptian hybrids, now they have Greek apparently too. We haven't really talked about the Greek ones, but all right. Um, Greek did have some nice hybrid, like when Zeus, there was this, I don't remember the whole story now, only because of that, but Zeus um Invited a guy up because the guy was obsessed with Zeus' wife Hera. And Zeus made a cloud to look like Hera and the guy procreated with that cloud. And if I don't misremember my Greek mythology, it's a bit rusty. But I think that's for where the Pegasus came, comes from. Um, man plus cloud. But <laughs> mainstream martial think that these stories are pure imagination. But is it? We have Philip Coppens, an author. We have seen him in basically every episode so far. And there was any saying that uh, there was this period in pre-dynastic Egypt where these demigods ruled. uh, Where we have not found any remains. And we don't know who they were. But we have scientific evidence that the ancient Egyptians firmly believed that they ruled. If they are people, aliens or hybrids, we don't know. Again, one claim that I can't really find my way back to. Sure, there's small rulers in pre-dynastic Egypt, but most pharaohs of the first dynasty was actually for a long time thought be godlike basically because we, as they say, we didn't have any evidence. but. Then they started to pop up and we even found, uh, or we believe we have found the arm of Zur, the earliest pharaoh uh, or remains of one pharaoh found, probably. Uh, At least he had a bracelet on the arm that indicated that this this was probably Zur. It could have been the queen too, but still uh, a good find. Unfortunately, this arm got lost at the museum because the curator back then, uh, he looked at the bracelet and thought it was, it was a really nice bracelet, fantastic craftsmanship and took it off the arm and then threw the arm away. <laughs> and it was actually um, uh, Petrie, Petri. uh, we met him too in the first episode, I think, Um but it was Petrie who made that find, and you can read in his memoirs that he writes that uh, a museum can sometimes be a very dangerous place. <laughs> and anyway, what if ancient Egypt had cloning and gene splicing? We can create hybrids now, can we? Um, sorta, I assume. We then meet Billy Barnes again, and he talks about... They were mixing alien, animal and human DNA. Not just for 10 years or 20 years, but for thousands and thousands of years. And that's why there are so many alien abductions. So I assume he claiming that the mixing and um, hybrid creation are still ongoing. Um, But to him it's why each generation is more... Cyclically more advanced than the next, until we get the complete union of two cultures, the ultimate hybrid. He don't really go into this much deeper, so neither will I. Because, again, it goes against most of biological knowledge today. And we meet Linda Howe, who says, We are not alone. And it makes you feel a bit nervous. Uh, And then we have commercials. Yay! (laughs) I'm quite happy that they have commercials in the versions I'm looking at. Uh, I gobbled them up. They are a refreshment, especially in this episode. It's a bit challenging. Uh, It feels like their passions went out a little bit in that, this one. So... We are back I mean they talk about 97% of all species has gone extinct during six events, which is basically correct. And Michael Cremo talk a bit about max extinctions in the past. And I think to myself during this, where will this go? Um, they are a bit unclear here with the red thread, especially in this first part. But uh, the narrator comes in and the shift is sudden and quick and say mainstream paleontologists. Oh sweet baby Thor, (laughs) this might be wild. And they talk a bit about um, what paleontologists believe extends the... uh dinosaurs, or at least what they think paleontologists believe extinct the, the dinosaurs, but they're mentioning meteor meteorites, floods, and dropping sea levels or another theory. Aliens wiped them out. <laughs> so previously they talked about that the aliens came here just in time for basically Homo erectus. When it made them to a scene and Homer and Rectus is ages between each other. They were not simultaneously. Um maybe they forgot. <laughs> but Arthur, the um, anthropology professor who seems to have become a bit of a nutter, um, is back and talking about ancient tablets from Sumer claiming that these aliens can t- control weather, yada yada. Yeah, I don't find it strange that gods would control weather. Do you? Yeah, it would be strange if they couldn't. But apparently this is signs that it would be aliens. But why did the aliens eradicate all these species? Was it for colonization? Make room for more docile or favorable creatures? And then they switched and talk about a bit of scalar technology. I just thought about the computer program that many companies use. Um, But they're talking about the scalar technology that is used to create hurricanes today. If you mean in a small lab, I don't think they do that on real full scale level, (laughs) at least yet. Uh, But yeah, they are doing um, tornadoes and hurricanes in Labs, that's quite cool in a way, but it's not like controlling an actual hurricane that they indicating that we can do to today or 10 years ago, at least. So, yeah, and it's Billy Barnes that made this claim that we have this hurricane-creating technology that we can basically use as a weapon. It could have been that the dinosaurs died out on an ice age created by the aliens. And then we're back to the seeding. We talked a lot about it last time. And they talk about different myths where gods came down to mate with humans. He's not even on the screen, then. I am by now just know Georgios' voice. I don't need to see him, but he talks about ancient texts that the god fans with Earthwoman, and if you've read Greek mythology, yeah, it seems as they did. But the people who wrote this down just misunderstood. It wasn't God, it was E.T. who made a boo to call I assume. And then we're back to American. On the um, screen we see petroglyph from Horseshoe Canyon. And as I understand, at least this petroglyph are from ancestors, not star people that they will talk about. We meet meet Nancy Redstar. I'm not too level a bit here. I'm not that fluent. In Native American culture and the whole tribe uh, part. Or I understand how the tribes work, but how the system works in the um, United States and how the tribes are controlled and things like that. I didn't find much about Nancy Redstar online. Mostly from New Age forums and things like that. But she seems to belong to a tribe that's not recognized by the US government. I'm not sure about the reason behind this properly. And if somebody would know, please let me know. It would help me. But Nancy Redstar seems to be a big proponent of crystal healings and things like that. But she talked about E.T. and especially the star that she digs down is they don't really go into detail what star people or the myth is around them or retelling the myth properly i find some reference to it in different sources and we're shown more petroglyphs from Sego canyon and nancy continues to talk about star husbands that brides would give birth to star children who then raised them until the age of six, and then they went to live with the star husband. And I can't really confirm or deny this at the time of uh, recording at least, but since it's ancient aliens, I would take this with a huge grain of salt. There is this notion of star people in Native American, but I haven't found any good description yet. But I'm working on a episode further on where we'll do a deep down into Native American, especially the claims that made in the show with a specialist that I hope to reveal a bit later. As I mentioned, the North American pre-Columbian history is not something I really that I don't really know well, and it would be nice to learn something more and to share this with all of you. And from Native Americans, we do a. Quick switch uh, back to the Bible, and more precise, the Pseudographica Apocrypha from the ancient Hebrew. It's more more religion in this that I than I expected to be honest. But Giorgio is talking about the Bible, and that there were many books that were removed during the Council of Nicaea, um, which is a myth. To be honest, uh, there is writings that Constantine ordered 50 copies of the Bible, basically, but nothing that they really decided on what stories would be in these Bibles, at least not at the Council at Nicaea. Yeah. But they don't mention that St. Nicolaus, basically Santa, started to beat pick up, pick up a bishop named Arius uh, in the show. Uh, Maybe they're trying to protect Santa from slander. I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) Anyway, they talk about Genesis Genesis 6 watchers, angels who had intercourse. And then again comes in, how can angels have sex? This is impossible. In the Bible, the angels don't have bodies, which is, again, one of those strange... Claims because the angels are very much described in the Bible. Ezekiel, for one. A really strange creature, though, uh, for most of it. But we then switch to Jonathan Young, who is a doctor of psychology. And he is talking about Mary getting pregnant with Jesus. We have uh, Reverend Barry H. Downing and Mr. Nori. And that and even the folklore guy all talking about that Jesus could have been an alien or something, yeah, maybe Jesus was an alien. So they don't really dig down in that part a lot, so I think we can gloss that over too. <laughs> then we're flying away away to China, and we're back at the fifth century, or we're not back, we're at the fifth century b c e and they talk about seven states and seven warlords. A battle for territory and power. And then we are recycling Huang Di again. Already we're on episode three. Five for us, but three um, ancient aliens at least. Um, but this time it actually differs. So in this episode we don't have Huang Di come in um, or come out from the belly of the dragon. In this episode... We have Jonathan Zhong instead of Giorgio telling the story and saying that a great god turned into a dragon and he came to earth and he saw Huang Di's mother on a hilltop. Upon the sight of the dragon, she fainted, and when she woke up, she was pregnant. When she saw the dragon, the sky had become full with dark cloud, but when she woke up, the weather was really nice. But if you remember back in episode 4, the last episode, or episode 2 for them, we have basically the same people, but then they put Wang Di in 3000 BCE, and that he was not born on Earth, that he came with a dragon not having a dragon as a father and the dates don't add up because in that episode uh, the dragon is the way for a poet in the past to describe a spaceship and to me this seems to to me it seems as they change in the story to fit the narrative that they want to be true not necessarily the narrative they get that by following the Sources and resources properly, and here is the place we will leave for today. So, in the next episode, we will close up episode three the mission. So, I'm super happy that you've been with me for this long, and I hope that you find it interesting and at least a little bit funny too. And if you haven't already, it would be great if you left a five-star review on the podcast service on your choice. Uh, review is a great way for us to continue growing and get to show out to more people. And I also get this nice little notification with a nice message on my phone that I can read. And if you do, I will thank you by name on the episode uh, in the first segment. So you get to hear it properly. And we have a lot of Things going on on the website and on Facebook and on Instagram. I'm trying to get better at Twitter, but um, I'm not that active as of yet, at least. And if you have any suggestions, comments, or correction, please reach out through the website diggingupancientaliens.com. There you can find a bit of information about me and um, the contact info and all our social media accounts. But that is it for this episode. I hope to see you next week when we finishing up the mission. Until then, have a great time and have an awesome great new year. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as 250 per episode. Go to slash That is go to slash support to read more information and sign up right there.